Hey everybody, this is Sean. This is Kevin. And here we are with another episode of Shot by Shot. And this is the second part of our inaugural chat between me and my fine co-hosts, Mr. Kevin and Brian Stelfreeze. We're going to learn a lot of stuff for you Stelfreeze fans. Uh, He'll talk about some of his cool projects in the past, like Gun Candy, a little Gary Oldman thrown in for fun. We all love Gary Oldman. That's universal. That's the one thing that unites us. All right, everybody. uh, Enjoy the episode, and we will be back shortly with more Shot by Shot. Like, for me, action sequences are the the sequences that you can really get experimental with uh, because they're so big uh, and you, you want them to feel like a, like a spectacle. Those are the shots where you can get really loud and you can play with the, uh, the medium a lot. That's what I um, revel in when I'm doing a, uh, a 12-gauge book. Die Valkyrie, which we did as uh, it was uh, the third uh, Lacey story that we did. And it was kind of it was kind of funny because Doug Wagner, you know, in German pronounced Wagner, decided since I'm Wagner, I have to do Die Valkyrie at some point. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and that was kind of where the idea of the story started. And we just kind of backwards engineered something to fit that. What's really cool is in that, again, experimenting with, okay, what kind of things can I do with storytelling and not? And for that, rather than doing the book in color, what I ended up doing was black, white, and one gray. And I can fade from that gray to black or that gray to white, and that's it. And that was the, the whole book was just done with those simple tones. Yeah, because we actually discussed doing that one in color. Because yeah. I personally regretted not doing gun candy in color because it was part of a ride flip book. I mean, you loved it. I mean, you know, the whole thing was started black and white, show you off your art. I kind of personally regretted not doing gun candy in color. So I know we talked about doing die Valkyrie in color, but it was a ride book and at the time it didn't make sense because that that's what was established a black and white book. And all you guys use black as a color. You and Jason Pearson, Kelly Hamner, I mean, the whole crew, could do black and white and it looked gorgeous and the page sort of like in the ride number one where they blow the car up the girls are all in like i forget the girl's name the character's name that actually shot the car that (laughs) blows up behind i mean i know you had you had a great line about that page like uh brian can freeze imploding cars in midair like nobody's business or something like I mean, that. yeah he's uh, look at that. i mean i'm looking at that image right now i'm getting an adrenaline rush i don't need coffee in the morning i just need brian's art <laughs> but like the thing i love about that entire comic is is you're just like fuck it we're just gonna have a lot of fun on a freeway for what three issues four issues and we're just going to have girls blowing up shit with guns and it works yeah. immaculately. And Brian, what 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 year was it that Matador came out? Was it oh five oh six? Yeah, I think so. I mean, because you know, uh, and for people that are listening, that was not technically a twelve gauge book. That was a Wildstorm series that made this twelve gauge guy really fucking jealous because we had just done the ride, and then and then you were working on this uh, for Wildstorm about a year later, and I was like. God, I wanted to publish that book so bad. And so it was kind of cool <laughs> when you got the rights back. You know, I, we, the 12 kids got to, to package it for image. But so far ahead of the curve, Matador and then Die Valkyrie, 
you were a comic book creator that was way out front of putting women first because there really there was Wonder Woman and a couple other characters here and there, but you actually put meaty stories starring females who were well developed, well rounded, layered characters doing shit in movies that had always been like guy comics, guy movies, the kind of stuff that that I you know always loved and sort of what's behind Twelve Gauge to begin with. Like you know nobody was doing Forty Eight Hours or Lethal Weapon in comic book form. That's kind of where the whole idea of 12 gauge came from. But you were doing this stuff way before it was the, the chic thing to do. I, I'm still surprised that you and Devin got Wildstorm to go for Matador because it had this female lead. This was a female detective in a man's world, uh, which oh, is, yeah. you know, comics have always been dominated. You know, That was one of, one of the ideas behind the Matador uh, story is the fact that you have uh, this girl who people's opinion are like, they're like roadblocks to her. She wants to be a detective, but none of the guys really even want her there. She's like first generation Cuban American. So she's kind of like in this position where she's constantly having to, okay, do you choose this white world or do you choose the Cuban world? There's also the, okay, uh, do you want to be a working woman or do you want to be a woman that has uh, a love interest and a family? And, uh, and, I, and I thought the, uh, the thing that was interesting about, uh, about guys is you could, a guy can be James Bond. You can have women and you can be a secret agent, you know, sort of out saving the world and shooting people because guys generally have the option of, and, but girls almost always have the option of, or you can do this or you can do that. You can't do both of them. And for some reason, it comes into conflict with girls, but it doesn't come into conflict with guys. So actually doing a story that explores that conflict that she's constantly in, but then to kind of go every part of it, you can't have any of it. You know, it's like the perfect guy shows up, but it's not the perfect guy. The perfect job shows up, but it's not the perfect job. You know, so everything about the world that she's living in is against her. And I, and I felt that that was apropos to the position that I think a lot of a lot of girls find themselves in. Brian, let me ask you, because I remember I was talking with Devin about this, is how much of that was a parallel of the comic book industry at the time, where it was very much a guy's club and a lot of these female writers were seen as minority hires? A lot of it was a was a parallel at the time, and uh, and I thought that was another reason why Devin is such a such a good person to tell that story with me, because I would have to use my imagination, but Devin can just simply tell the truth and tell that story. You know, it was it was really cool because she was on her own. You know, she was one of the few girls that were out there writing Batman, so it was like kind of cool to see her. You know, because I would propose these things, and I'd go, yeah. I believe things are like this. And she could step in and say, no, they're worse than that. And let me tell you, it was really cool. And uh, part of it may be growing up in a matriarchal kind of society. I'm always fascinated by strong female characters. I like the idea of a girl that doesn't need guys, you know, but a girl who chooses to have one, you know, sort of rather than, you know, sort of, oh, you know, the whole idea of you complete me. I'm not necessarily a, a fan of that. For Die Valkyrie, I thought Doug came up with this really cool thing 
which is this kind of yin yang uh, of the story where you have Lacey who is inherently bad. She is just a, a horrible person desperately trying to be good. You know, so she's hanging out with these nuns, hoping that that's going to make her good. And on the flip side, you have this group of girlfriends that are good people, but they want to be bad. <laughs> you know, they want to they want to like, hey, we're going to steal the car and we're going to, you know, sort of just be bad. And the story is like one train leaves one station and the other train leaves the other station and they're heading towards each other. I think that crash on that highway is the moment where the inherently good girls realize, oh, my God, I'm not bad. This is actually above my head. And at the same time, Lacey, the inherently bad girl, realizes, you know what? I tried the good thing and it didn't work. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> so like in the next few pages, Lacey just completely unleashes on everyone. She absolutely yep. does. It was amazing. Just a lot of fun to uh, to do yeah, stuff like that. Those trains were not passing in the night. They hit <laughs> no. head on. <laughs> <laughs> it, was a collision. it was a collision course, and uh, and 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 that's that's one of the things that I that I love about about working with uh, with Doug is it's it's not just these stories about like oh these good people have to beat these bad people and end of story, but like uh, it's a it's a lot of psychological stuff going. On. You know, and yeah. a lot of kind of deeper meaning in uh, in things. And I look at that stuff and I go, okay, that's awesome. Let me put some explosions in there. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I've told Brian this multiple times. There is nobody, and I mean, period, end of discussion, nobody in comics that blows shit up better than Brian. <laughs> it's impossible to find somebody. It doesn't happen. <laughs> Like those flames, those billows of flames are unparalleled. I've never seen anyone nail that degree of destruction and debris quite like you have, Brian. Yeah, anybody, it's so funny. Any, anybody that says, oh, so-and-so does great explosions, and then you just show them like one of 50 Brian pages, just pick, <laughs> pick the panel, and they're like, okay, yeah, you win. I mean, there's, there's like no, nobody close. Uh, they're so iconic too. Let me ask you guys, who impresses you right now in their sequential art and their shots? Who do you look at and say, all right, that's going to be someone to watch out for? Oh man. You know, right now there's just like so many younger people and there's so many Europeans that are just like rushing the gates right now. And they're just like bringing such amazing stuff. The stuff that, that Fiona's doing is uh is just just unbelievable with saga you know i look at that stuff and i'm like wow that's absolutely perfect um eric canetti is uh is another guy that like doesn't, i love it doesn't do enough stuff by the way oh no 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 it's like when when it happens it's uh it's it's absolute gold but uh but yeah i, I love that guy's stuff and uh and he's another guy just the way that he uh, handles action the way that he moves the human form around is uh it's just on another level and i and i sit back and and i i admire uh what he does have you guys uh seen trad moore's recent work oh no, no i'm not familiar trad moore does beautiful stuff so it's, it's a little bit more mega inflected but like his sense of design and repetition like it's almost computer-like 
how much he can weave a pattern throughout these amazing, expansive, almost Kirby-esque degrees of action, even though it's not like Kirby at all. It's a much more flowing. There's like few right angles, but Treadmore is definitely someone who I'm curious to see what he does next. Every time he does something, it's it's better than the last thing he did. He's really great. And I'm I'm sitting here trying to think, like, there's so many up-and-coming artists right now that they don't even understand who their influences are. I was having a, I won't name the artist, but I was having this conversation with a guy at Heroes Con maybe two years ago. And there's so many artists at Heroes Con. It's my favorite show to go to, just like walk the aisles, look through portfolios and, and see artists and what they're, you know, what they're up to. New guys that I don't know, guys and girls. But I was talking to this one artist and I was flipping through his stuff and I'm like, you must be a huge Walt Simonson fan. He had no idea who Walt Simonson was. Oh, wow. And he started telling, yeah, he started telling me his influence. I'm like, well, you, these guys that you're mentioning, they were influenced by Walt Simonson, <laughs> and you need to go start picking his shit up right now because you draw like him. Yeah, in like, fact, since you're at Heroes, he's sitting over there. Go, go right? speak to him. And you're like, you're 12. I mean, you know, like, how, can, how do you not know who Walt Simonson is? You're so, you must be too young. It was crazy great pages. Uh, but he literally had no idea that he was drawing like Walt Simonson because he was drawn by all these guys that, you know, Wildstorm, this, that, and the other places that he was reading as a kid. And those guys were heavily influenced by Walt Simonson. So it's, it's funny to see that the new wave of people coming up influenced by stuff that we maybe didn't pay attention to, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. But these guys, that's what they formed their style from. But yeah, it's the comics has never been in a better position as far as the artists that are coming up. I mean, you yeah, don't see yeah, without, with, without a doubt. I think not only is there really good art, there's uh, there's just some, some great uh, storytelling uh, happening. And I think even like the, uh, the, the old guard guys, um, the stuff that Mike Mignola is doing right now is just absolutely amazing. And even hundred bullet bullets, uh, Eduardo Rizzo. Yeah. It's like, yeah, that guy's just like he's he's like a haiku. He's just got it boiled down <laughs> to the absolute limit. This thing is uh, when when Mike Manola was doing uh, Dracula, and that was at um, like uh, Tops Comics. Yeah, um, the the most awesome thing was, was at the time I had a spy in Tops, and every time Mike would turn in the new pages, he'd copy the pages and send them to me. So I've got like a um, I've got like a collection of Mike Mignola's Dracula, you know, the whole thing in black and white. <laughs> you know, it's just like <laughs> so amazing. I, was, I actually have one of those pages. I don't care ever exactly how I, I I horse traded for it, but I've got a Mignola Dracula page uh, framed up, and um, yeah, it's it's that's a gem to say the least. I don't have a lot of art, but that's that's a great one. Going back to what you were saying, Brian, the thing about Mignola that I loved was the pacing of it, that he could have the weirdest one-shot panels and would be of like a frog or just complete black. And then he would have a giant demon with a stone fist hitting the shit out of another demon. And it was just the way he was able to like slow that down and create the atmosphere. The way he was able to accelerate it was always masterful. Oh yeah, and and what one of the cool things that I, that I think about um, when when he does that, he'll do panels like that, 
And what they'll do is they'll they'll set up a beat, but rather than just setting up that beat of something that's that's completely part of the story, when he sets up that beat, it's it's not only a rhythm beat, but it's also an emotional note that he plays. He'll do that and and although you're watching the panel before, there's no frogs on the panel before. There's none of that. But then he'll do that shot of that frog or he'll do that shot of that beetle or that like octopus tentacle. And it gives you a certain feeling. And then he comes in with the with the punch. <laughs> you know, so it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's almost like um, an MMA fighter that gives you a feint and you look at that feint and then he hits you with the other hand. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's it's a perfect just, analogy. Yeah, it's, and uh, and and he is such a master at doing that, and uh, and I think Mike Mignola is is great at time and space, just really kind of slowing that time down, so you're just crawling along, and just one of the best conversations I had with Mike was uh, was at a bar, and he was kind of talking about wanting comics to feel like opera, wanting that that glorious operatic feel to it. And I realized, oh, wow, okay, so he's not trying to do a movie. You know, he's not trying to do, like, cinema. He's not trying to do comics. Everything he does owes itself to an operatic production. And the way that he puts together a set doesn't feel like a realistic set. It feels like a set and an opera. And if you ever watch an opera, it gives you the same feeling uh, that Mike creates in doing Hellboy or any of the, uh, the stories that, uh, that he illustrates. Well, Brian, let me ask you a question. You do stuff for film as well, right? You do concept art? Yeah, I've done some, uh, some concept stuff and, uh, and some storyboard stuff. So how does that compare to working in comics? Is it vastly different or do you take in a different mindset or rhythm when you do those Marvel movies? It's actually very similar in a way. The thing about it is, is, uh, is kind of, I think a percentage of your toolbox is gone because now you can't dictate time through the size and shape of, uh, of panels. You know, you're, you're kind of locked to a, uh, to a format and all the action has to happen inside the panel rather than changing the shape of the panel to make the reader feel a certain uh, a certain rhythm. So now you have to use framing to dictate the feeling of, of high and low energy. But other than that, a lot of the cues are a, exactly the same. A lot of what I do, like uh, Carl Story, who is a fantastic inker and was the person that taught me how to ink in comics. And he inked some of my first uh, books uh, doing comics. His sister-in-law went to, uh, to film school out in uh, California, UCLA. So what's cool is before I got into comics, I I did a comic book and I thought, okay, I need to learn a lot more. I really talked with her a lot about uh, film theory and moving the camera around and setting up shots for a specific reason. And from there, I was able to kind of go, okay, now let me go back and rewatch films and not think of it as, ooh, it's pretty, but think about it as, okay, there's a reason why the director did that. And it's carrying a certain a certain meaning. So I'm trying to consider the why of it more so than the how of it. So I think we're all pretty good in sauced. Two of us are. Uh, yeah, I don't know about you. I've I've been pouring all night. Uh, my my lister numb. Uh, still trying to talk. <laughs> Kevin, you sound completely coherent. 
I said, I am anti-sauced. I am caffeinated. <laughs> you know, caffeinated. We didn't even get to like our favorite shots on film. That was one of the things that uh, we had sort of talked about discussing. But who knew we were going to talk about Steranko and uh, Sean Connery films? I, I don't usually sit and sip whiskey. Like mm-hmm. I'll have a shot, you know, like a little sipping whiskey here or there. But yeah, I'm, I'm mostly a Jack and Coke guy. This Knob Creek shit is really good. Ah, oh, really? It's, it's really smooth. It's got a nice peanutty flavor uh, yeah. does it have a, I mean, does it have a, a burn at the end or is it like a little softer like a like a rum at the end yeah i mean this is a it's, it's there's a little burn I mean, it, it's a bourbon i'm which I'm, I'm more of a whiskey guy this is a bourbon really good sipping bourbon uh, i have to say so my expertise in this field is pretty much zero but yeah it's good stuff it, it was a funny so you had talked brian about how you went back retroactively and checked out your favorite cinematography. So what influenced your storyboards and your concept art for the What influences movie? me now more than anything else is, uh, is noir. And it's, it's almost like what Kevin said about, um, about the guy um, checking out some Walt Simonson. That's what I did because I, I kind of realized, oh man, all the directors that I'm in love with, let me go back and check out their influences. So I went back and I, you know, started looking at some uh, some Fritz Lang, um, started looking at some uh, some some of the old Busby Berkeley stuff, and uh, and even um, there was this uh, cinematographer by the name of uh, John Alton, and uh, and I just like started tracking down um, works that he'd been the uh, DP on, like Raw Deal and uh, T Men and the big combo and, and, uh, and just looking back at stuff like that, even, uh, Val Luton, the producer looking at, uh, at his work. And, uh, and that, it was really awesome seeing the prime stuff and then kind of going, okay, I see where Tony Scott gets this from. I see where this director gets, uh, gets this from, because these are the guys that kind of invented the, uh, the language. That stuff is stuff that's a huge influence on my work. And anytime I do boards, Oh, wow. So, well, you know, it's funny. We were talking about how to do this podcast and what would kind of set it apart. And I, I thought back to when I was taking, I went to Auburn University, which is not a film school, but but I got a, a major in TV and film. And when I had this really great professor, and uh, I remember the first movie that we watched in class, which was, we watched Touch of Evil. And I was thinking back to that about that opening shot, which was like three and a half minutes. And, you know, back in the day, I mean, when was this like, you know, 1940 or 1950, whatever. Yeah. Um, and and how I really need to go back and watch it again. But just that opening track, I mean, it was three and a half minutes, which there's no editing. There's no CGI. There's there's nothing. There's no special effects. It was. Orson Welles with his camera. It starts with it with a with a guy that puts a, a bomb in the back of this beautiful, you know, ni- uh, 1948, 1950, whatever Chevy convertible. He puts yeah. a bomb in the trunk. That's how it opens up. And I still quite can't quite figure out how Charlton Heston was playing a Mexican cop, but uh, <laughs> it was just an era. <laughs> but it worked different job <laughs> <laughs> but the, the sh- it's just an amazing scene where you know you, you follow the car it, it it 
it goes through like down the side streets and cuts between buildings. People are running in front of it. There's like the, these guys with like the food carts and the little like wheelbarrows with full of, you know, uh, vegetables or whatever running across the street. Uh, there's guys in suits running around and it, it's falling down, like down the city block, of the Mexico U S border, uh, the, the opening scene of this film. That's the kind of shit that is in my head when I wanted to to do comic books with guys like Brian was let's do shit that couldn't be done. Like that, that oh, wasn't being done. Not that it couldn't be, but it, that nobody would let you do. And and the funny thing about that movie, it's, it's, it's gotta be an all time. Like it's in the you know top films in history, like top 100 films ever made, whatever it's in the U S archives, all that stuff. Uh, and it was a, a bomb. Uh, in the United States, it did really well in Europe. I just remember you know, when, we, when we took the film class on it, because Orson Welles made this movie, and for whatever reason, Universal Studios kind of passed it off, and um, they didn't do shit. Like they didn't promote it. It was the B feature at the drive-ins. Oh yeah. And now it's you know it's considered one of the greatest films in in cinema history because Orson Welles was such a visionary. And but it was more. It had these, you know, and there was another another scene. It was in an apartment that was like maybe a 10-minute shot that nobody ever talks about because there's, nothing was moving, right? But it was supposedly, at least from, from what I understand, a harder uh, scene to film than the opening shot uh, from Touch of Evil, which is, an, you know, uh, on a side note, is what inspired Alfred Hitchcock when he made Psycho. Like, he saw yeah. that film, and he was like, all right, and I'm forgetting the cinematographer's name, but I believe he he hired the cinematographer from that movie. Do you remember this, Brian? Is that right? It was the cinematographer from from Touch of Evil to do Psycho, and and oh, and he even hired uh, really fantastic, man. Yeah, I mean it's just so funny, and and it was completely dismissed at the time. Like, and it was Orson Welles' first movie back in the states. Like he had had a a bit of an exile, so this was supposed to be his comeback film, and then it got buried. Um, I can't remember, you know, I don't remember, this was a long, I was in college a long, long time ago. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> this was in, you know, the early 90s. But something like that still, like today, you watch that that scene and you and you look at the technical, like what had to go into that to make it work then versus now where they just cheat like crazy. They just use a computer. And I haven't, uh, you know, I haven't seen 1917, but I, I understand that it's sort of inspired by that scene, like that long running scene that never ends oh, yeah. but when hitchcock did uh did rope you know uh, where that's like all the entire movie is just like one big moving shot you know that's that's just awesome you know and even building the set so that they can break it down so that the camera can move in from one room and and out of a out of a door and everything like that so so yeah that, and and, and I, I think what you're talking about those those types of scenes that that really kind of hold you, you know, where, where it's just like, you're really looking at a piece of cinema and, and your brain switches over from, I'm watching a movie to I'm actually there, <laughs> you know, I'm actually there. Experiencing you, this thing. And there you like, like he sets, it's a bomb that's set to like a kitchen timer. Right. So like, like they made it really easy for you to figure out what's going on. He, he turns the timer to like, you know, five minutes or three minutes and he yeah, runs so to the car. You know what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. And that's what makes it so intense is because, like, the, the couple are, are walking towards their car. 
and he's behind it trying to throw the bomb in before they get there. So then you see the car driving down the city streets and then she gets to the border. She's about, I think they're about to head back into the States. So they're at the United States border. And the lady says, do you hear that ticking? I have it. There's a ticking in my head. And the guy's like, yeah, just go on. You know, you're good. Move forward, lady, whatever. You've had too, too much to drink in Tijuana. Uh, and, and, then, and then the car blows up, like right when it goes across the border. So you, so that's, I guess, the setup for the film is that this car comes from Mexico and blows up 100 yards in the United States. Now, I really need to go watch that movie again. Yeah, but, but the intensity of like you knew this bomb was going to go off. And, oh, and yeah. you just didn't know when. So that the intensity of watching that scene, that whole three and a half minutes until the car blows up, it seems like 20. Because you're just like, ah, you're on the edge of your seat because you know what's about to happen. To me, the the thing that that storytelling is capable of doing, where if, if the storytelling's done right, it, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, pencil and ink on paper or if it's like film cellulose or, or, or even words on a page, really turns itself into into an experience. I think that's that's just awesome, you know. So yep. let me ask you guys a question. Have you guys ever seen a movie called The Workmeister Harmonies? No, no, I've heard about it. What's the deal with that? Black and white uh, by a naturalist filmmaker from Hungary called Bilatar. So, so we're going into very uh, austere indie film, uh, film snobbery here, but 39 mm-hmm. shots, 145 minutes. Whoa. So there's some amazing camera work here. And like the best one is, is okay, we're in this small town and it's about this, uh, I think it's a circus that carts around this taxidermy corpse of a whale and kind of whips everyone up into this anarchy. But, but initially it has this guy and he makes an orrery. I think I'm pronouncing that right. But like the planets, you know how they circle and revolve around each other out of a bunch mm-hmm. of drunks in a bar and it's like a 15 minute shot and it is the coolest thing i have ever seen oh man wow that's great <laughs> I, I don't know if you can actually like get this movie on amazon prime i think i have it like as a bootleg dvd somewhere but i know warren ellis cites it as one of his favorite movies and for cinematography and just looking at people doing crazy stuff without a huge budget it is amazing it's nuts see brian this is why the young guys also on here (laughs) young young in parentheses (laughs) (laughs) oh you're you're a baby (laughs) 